that we see under Nehemiah. But because I'm preaching on Nehemiah, you can't mention Nehemiah. So we won't mention Nehemiah. That's virtually the last mention of Nehemiah we'll get. What I'm going to do is just going to give you a brief introduction to what we're going to look at this morning. Then I'm going to pray again, just for good measure. And then we'll get into the meat. When the people of Israel, if you remember, under Ezra, they rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed. And we read there a marvellous thing. In Ezra chapter 3, we read this. Then the people, after the foundations had been laid, took their places to praise the Lord. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw these foundations of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Sometime later, when under Nehemiah, the... Help him, Lord. I mentioned Nehemiah there very briefly. I said I'd mention him briefly again. (laughs) Fine. Let me just see. I think I'm going to quote John, just so you know. I'm going to quote briefly from Nehemiah chapter 8. Then, as I understand it, I'm going to mention him once more. Okay, so you've got two more goes. Right. Under Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. The people were gathered in front, um, in a great big square in front of the water gate. And we read there that they celebrated with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites hadn't celebrated like this. And their joy was very great. Now something profound had happened. Because this was the very same people whose only song when they'd been in Babylon had been this. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us the songs of Zion. How could we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? These people have been radically transformed. And what had transformed them was the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy that we read in Ezekiel and we read also in Jeremiah. This was one of these prophecies. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. I will give them an undivided heart. And I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone. And I will give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people, and I will be their God. 
That's the phrase that we're going to look at this morning. It's a transforming phrase. They will be my people and I will be their God. And it starts when hearts of stone are turned to hearts of flesh. Let's just call down God's blessing on us that he'll turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Father, move among us by your Holy Spirit now. You are faithful to your word, we believe, Lord. That your spirit and your word are active amongst us. We believe you're faithful to your word. That your word can't go out without first watering the land on which it falls. Water us, Lord. Lord, water us. Cause fruit to come in our lives because of your word going out this morning. We look to you for it, Lord. We believe that you are a God of your word and that that word is mighty and it changes our lives. Be with us now, Lord. Speak to us by your spirit. Lord, speak to us. Amen. Okay. If um, you like to have a passage of scripture open before you while someone's preaching, the passage that I'd recommend you have open before you comes much further on in the Bible. It's in 1 Peter. It's in chapter 2. And it's really from verse 9 to verse 10. Two verses that I hope will act as a sounding board for what we're going to look at this morning. You, that's you, you, are a chosen people. You, yes, that's still you he's talking to here, are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen nation. You are a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the 17th century, when the scholars translated the Greek and the Latin and turned it into the authorized version, they translated part of verse 9 as, instead of, as we now have, a people belonging to God, they translated that as a peculiar people. Now, some would say that that still holds true, but I need to explain to you that peculiar there has the same sort of root as pecuniary to do with money or speculation as in the stock exchange. And it had to do with things that weren't held in common, that weren't common to everyone, things which one person particularly owned. They were his peculiar goods. And we are God's peculiar people. Wycliffe had translated that phrase as a people of God's possessing. A people here, a people belonging to God. And the three things that I want to look at this morning are a peculiar people and their God, a peculiar people and each other, and a peculiar people and the world. When Jeremiah prophesied over the people in Babylon, they, just, they were settled there in Babylon. They began to build homes and houses for themselves. Jeremiah promised them this from God. He said, I know the plans I have for you, there are plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And then he went on to say, to promise this, 
that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. God is in the business of changing people. Alex just uh, earlier in the meeting just thanked God that God had changed him. Someone else asked God to continue changing her. It's a continuing process. People are continually being changed. As I look at my life, I see it's being changed. Sometimes the pace isn't what I want it to be, but God is changing me. As I look around, I see God changing people. In 1877, a man went over to the Irish Derby. That was, uh, that was held just outside Dublin in, in Punchtown. And he missed the boat back from Kingston Harbour in Dublin. So he decided to pop into the theatre that evening. And that evening, a man called Dwight L. Moody was preaching. And a man called Ara D. Senke was playing the piano. And this man was completely transfixed by what this man said. And completely transfixed by the songs that were sung. And instead of going back, he was a gentleman of leisure, so he could, could organize his life in this way, he stayed on day after day after day until one night he followed a throng of people through into the inquiry room. Um, he knelt by Moody's side and Moody said, do you believe that God has saved you? And this man said, I do. Moody said, then thank him. So he said, thank you, Lord. And his life was changed. Now, he had a friend, a friend called Stud, an elderly, well, not that time particularly elderly, a tea planter who'd retired to spend his fortune. He spent his fortune by buying an extremely smart house, a place called, uh, called Tidford in Wiltshire, put a cricket pitch in a paddock, bought a few racehorses, uh, even trained and, and, man, and, uh, and owned a racehorse called Salamander which won the Grand National. I was absolutely delighted. And he had an absolute humdinger of a horse. And so he rang his friend, Mr. Vincent, who'd heard Moody, and said, put every penny you've got on, Salaman, on, on, this, on this new horse. A few days later, they arranged to, to meet in London to have dinner together. And uh, Stud said, come and have dinner with me. My family are still in the country. We'll have dinner together, and then we'll go wherever you want to go. Little did he know what had happened to his pal Vincent in the interim. First of all, he said, well, have, did you back the horse? And Vincent said, no, I didn't, and explained why. that he'd become a Christian in the interim, and Stug was slightly perturbed by this. But when Vincent said that he suggested they go to Drury Lane after dinner, Stud sort of sparked up a bit and thought this was all right. But of course, Dwight L. Moody and Ira D. Sankey were there that evening but they couldn't get in. So Vincent was quite determined. So he got his card case out, got a card, wrote on the back of it, gave it to a steward who, who he knew, said, come to the side door and let me in because I've got a very rich sporting gentleman with me. If I don't get him in here tonight, I'll never get him in here again. So the steward led them through the green room door, down across the stage and plumb in front of Moody. That man was converted that night. He died two years later. But in the interim, he got speaker after speaker after speaker down to his country house parties there. 
in Wiltshire. His coachman was approached by an old friend of Studs. He said, I understand your master's got religious. The coachman said, well, I wouldn't put it exactly like that, he said, but all I know is that though it's the same skin, there's a new man inside. Now, that man's stud, as I say, died two years later. He died because he burst a blood vessel in his leg, running home because he'd forgotten to invite a friend to a meeting. But in that two years, his three sons all became Christians. They all actually became Christians on the same afternoon, but none of them knew it until they got back to school and his father wrote them uh, a sort of common letter congratulating them on the decision they'd taken to follow Jesus. And then they realized that all three had been converted on the same afternoon, but they hadn't quite managed to summon up the nerve to tell one another. Now, that was a man transformed by the power of God, a man whose heart of stone was turned to a heart of flesh, a man who cared passionately about racehorsing, who came to care passionately... What did I say? Did I say racehorsing? <laughs> Fine, that's right. Thank you very much. This is the sort of encouragement... That I could well do without. (laughs) But I tell you this, God's doing exactly the same thing in changing people today. I asked Andy back if I could mention him in the same breath as C.T. Studd. (laughs) And he modestly said, well, not quite the same breath, but a couple of breaths away. So here we go. (sighs) Now, Andy back, okay led the worship last Sunday. And Ruth and I were talking about it afterwards, and we said, that's like a new Andy back since he went away on that, that barge holiday. And I said to Andy, it's like seeing a new Andy back. And Andy said, well, there is a, there's something about that. There is a new me. I feel that God has dealt with me in that way. And if you've come across some of the people who went away on that holiday, they've been changed. I've spoken to some of them, and I can hear how they've, I've heard how they've been changed in areas which perhaps I thought, well, I'd love to be able to mention that area of life to you. But I haven't dared because I felt I'd get it thrown back in my face. But God has touched. Some of them I've not spoken to, I've just seen. And there's a look about some of those people that shows that God has changed them. God is in the business of turning hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Now let me just offer you three ways in which we can cooperate, as it were, with God. It's God's sovereign act. Why should God decide to move in the lives of however many people it was, a dozen people, on a barge just outside Macclesfield? Is there a particularly holy nature to the canal just outside Macclesfield? I know little about Macclesfield. I'm sure there are those that have Macclesfield written on their hearts. But there is nothing more special about Macclesfield than there is about a theatre in an art college in Brighton. But God chose to move on those people. It's a sovereign act of God. But I do believe that we can cooperate with God. You will seek me and you'll find me. That's the promise. You'll find God when you seek him with all your heart. I believe that we need a new awareness of the parenthood of God. We need to be aware, just like that prodigal son was, as he made his way back from the pigsty a long way away. 
as he came back towards his father, he saw his father with his arms out running towards him. Now, I don't think that that father just happened to catch sight of his son. The image I have of that is of the father going up onto the roof of his house and looking out after his son day after day after day. And then his heart just lifting and soaring as he sees his son. Full of trepidation, full of fear, full of confusion about his sonship, beginning to come back to him. And I believe that his father's heart just went out with joy down those steps and roaring off down the road to welcome his son back. And I believe that our father is like that to us. And he wants us to realize that. He wants some people in the room to realize that. He's never grasped that before. That the fa- their father, the living God, has his arms out to them this morning. And he's saying, I want you because you are mine. Now you'll have all sorts of excuses, just like that son did. That son may or may not still have been covered with pig manure. I don't know. But I shouldn't think he was a pleasant chap to be around after a few years in a pigsty. He certainly didn't have what we now like to call a very strong self-image. He'd had everything, and he'd blown it. There were all sorts of excuses he'd made to himself about not coming back to his father. But he was his father's son, and his father wanted him. And the Father God wants, I believe, every person in this room. For some of you, as I say, it's because you've never, ever felt the embrace of God. You've never come to God. And he's calling you. I want you to know that his arms are outstretched to you this morning. But there's some of you who've been in the presence of God, like that son was. And you've moved away. Some of you not that far away. But some of you still think that perhaps I'm not really a son. I'm just a servant. That's what that son thought. I'm just a servant. Perhaps he'll take me back as a servant. If not as a son. Father God's got his arms out to all of us this this morning. And he's saying, I want you as my son. And as we increase in our awareness of the parenthood of God that we are the children of the Most High God, then God will continue and increase to touch our hearts. It required that son just to turn and begin to come back. It wasn't easy, but his father was there to welcome him. Increasing awareness of the parenthood of God. This I know, God is for me. I know it, I'm convinced of it. I have a Father in heaven who loves me, who is supremely for me, who disciplines me as a son, who delights when I come into his presence, who twirls around with pleasure when I worship him. I'm convinced of that. There was a time when I very much wasn't. I'm convinced of it. Increasing awareness of the parenthood of God Increasing awareness of the presence of God. I remember Terry preaching on this and saying there's a sense in which we are always in the presence of God. And that's true. We are always in the presence of God. 
If I go up into the highest mountain, you are there. If I go into the depths of the ocean, you are there also. But there's also a sense in which the presence of God, we can be more intensely in the presence of God, if you like, than, than at some other times. Queen Esther understood that when her mentor Mordecai said, now go and ask the king because his favours towards you. And she went in to the presence of her husband, the king, and saw his scepter stretched out towards her. And that was a sign that he would grant her requests. And it's a time when we need to realize that the scepter of God is stretched out towards us. And it's the right time to be pressing God for things that we may have pressed God for again and again and again. I don't profess to understand why this happens. All I know is that there have been times when I have known the presence of God with a profound intensity. And we need to to increase in that. I understand, again, harping back to Macclesfield of sacred memory, that... The first evening when these people just met together, spent time on a bridge, was worshipping God, no sense of great expectation. But through the week, more and more, Marie Houlihan had a sense of knowing when God had finished, as it were, for the evening, or when there was more to come. And she was aware of the presence of God. I'd urge you, to seek that awareness, that increasing sensitivity. It's mildly embarrassing. I have to tell you that since a little South African called Rob Rufus came, um, I have, so Pete Jarvis had caught me uh, once when Steve Ryder had prayed over me and I'd gone down like a ton of bricks and Pete had caught me and staggered. The morning that, Ruth, that, um, that uh, Rob Rufus prayed over Pete, I was privileged to catch him. Um, <laughs> But it was so quick that my arms were out and there was Pete in a little pile on the floor. So, poor Pete. He's in a big pile on the floor. But after uh, Pete had been dealt with, I remember Rob Rufus praying over me. He said, Lord, he said, put the volts through this man. And I do. Now, I couldn't, I wasn't sure. You know how you, you sort of think, now, have I remembered this right? Is this right? But I, it's there on the tape. Lord, put the volts through this man. Now, since that time, when Rob Rufus had been talking about the anointing of God as being a physical thing that you're aware of, there are times when, and I'm, again, as a good evangelical, I'm embarrassed to say this because one's not supposed to feel these things and go on these things. But when the Holy Spirit is moving, I feel a profound weight on my hands. Andy Back's a great encourager to me in this because he, he's aware when I, I've got the weight of, of God there on me. And I, I'm being guided by that. I'm nervous of it because I don't understand it. It doesn't add up. But let's be increasingly sensitive to the presence of God, an increasing awareness of the presence of God. An increasing awareness of the promises of God is the third area that I think will help us develop and be uh, able, as it were, to be changed by the living God, having our hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh. Samuel Rutherford was a great 17th century preacher. Enjoyed enormous success in Galloway. Um, It was in the time of Archbishop Lord. 
and they particularly didn't like uh, what he was preaching. He got arrested on several occasions, spent a long time in Aberdeen prison, uh, suffered greatly there, came out of prison, uh, went on to be one of the, the most popular preachers before the House of Commons in London uh, in, the, in, the 18, in the 1840s, in the 1640s. And he had this to say about the promises of God. Run to the promises of God. They are our Lord's branches hanging over the water so that his half-drowned children may take a grip on them. Let go that grip and you sink to the bottom. Increasingly aware of the promises of God. If you can get it, get hold of Larry Tomzak's tape, Positive Confessions to Build Your Faith. I find it quite exhausting. If I listen to it in the morning, promise after promise after promise after promise. I am the Lord that healeth you. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. There are good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Run to the promises of God. Don't take them out of context. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That promise took 70 years to be fulfilled. Be aware of it when you stand on it. I stand on it. I know that God has plans for my life. Because I know that there was a 70-year gap between promise and fulfillment, it gives me an element of patience when I see disappointments. <laughs> an increasing awareness of the promises of God. A peculiar people and their God. A peculiar people and each other. Let me just read you. I don't know if your office is like this. This is um, an office described um, by a character called Slocum in Joseph Heller's book, Something Happened. He wrote Catch-22. In my department, there are six people who are afraid of me, and one small secretary who is afraid of all of us. I have one other person working for me who is not afraid of anyone, not even me. The thought occurs to me often that there must be mail clerks, office boys and girls, stock boys, messengers and assistants of all kinds and ages who are afraid of everyone in the company. Often I protect and defend my boss, Jack Green, when he's late or forgetful with work of his own. And I frequently give him credit for good work from my, from my department that he does not deserve. But I never tell him I do this. And I never let him know when I hear anything favorable about him. I enjoy seeing Green apprehensive. I am pleased he distrusts me. It does wonders for my self-esteem. And I do no more than necessary to reassure him. And do you know, I believe that I am the best friend he has. I don't know if your office is like that. I thank God that mine isn't. But that, to a large extent, is the norm of human relations. Compare that. Now this is the final mention of Nehemiah. Compare that with the people that Nehemiah gathered around him and motivated. Compare that with Moses standing up there, having his hands held up by his friends. I believe we are richly blessed, and I feel myself personally richly blessed, to be part of a church that focuses on relationships. In the summer, we moved from house groups to care groups. Now, some of us thought, well, I thought, well, this is actually small house groups. But the thinking was radically different. 
And over the months since then, I've, and so leading up to then, so really through this year, um, I've had a picture that, that has developed and, and, uh, and fleshed out. Let me share it with you. Often a, a house group in the past could be like, like a bicycle wheel, okay? With all the spokes going in towards the center, and the center was the leader. And the faster the spokes were going around, the faster the leader was having to go around. I'm not good at physics, but I believe that if um, a rim is going fast, then the hub is going faster. Is that right? Or is that John, tell me. The other way around. Anyway, there's an awful lot of high-speed movement going on there. Okay. Now, when we moved... When we moved down into care groups, some people thought that we were just going down into little bicycle wheels, okay, with smaller, smaller hubs, smaller spokes, and smaller rims. The picture that God gave me, and uh, it seems to be one that's producing fruit, is not of, of that picture, but rather of a net, where every person is tied in at various points to the net, that we're all linked to one another. So that rather than a group here and a group there, we've got a net that's spreading out over the congregation, spreading out over the church, in which we know that this person is linked to that person, and that person is linked to that person, and that person's linked to that person. And it's, the image, as you can see, is a much stronger one. The image, therefore, you can have as leaders of these groups will also be different. Instead of buzzing around extremely fast in a circle, your role is, as it were, that of the mender of the net. Your job is to make sure that the net doesn't have holes in it. That each... Well, the net will have holes in it. Some people would say that a net is various holes tied together. For the purposes of this exercise, folks, we are concentrating on the bits that make up the net, not the holes, okay? Like any analogy, you can press it too far if you are determined to. Resist the temptation. There are various promises in the scripture about resisting temptation. Use these promises to resist the temptation about the holes in the net, okay? Thank you. So we've got leaders going about making sure that the net has all the bits tied together. Okay. And what this does is instead of, of creating a whole lot of spinning bicycle wheels, it allows for organic growth. Because you can see as the net grows, providing people are linked to one another, as we grow, they'll continue to be linked to one another, but the net spreads, spreads outwards. And it's going to take a lot of pressure off as we grow. It's going to stop an awful lot of people going round and round in very fast circles. And as I've thought about it, there seem to me to be three sorts of relationships that we should all be aspiring to have. Now, I do mean all, and I do believe that it's something, this is something that all of us should be aspiring to have, these three types of relationships. If we, do, if we do, then I believe that we will know that we are growing healthily. It will take a lot of the crisis management, if you like, out of leadership. There was a point um, through the early part of this year when the group in Kemptown had grown to, to really a, a silly size. But all I was doing was crisis management. The only people I saw were people who rang up and said, I've got to see you this evening. 
bundles of people who are going on with God and with whom I should have been spending time, as well as with the people who needed caring for as emergencies, as it were. But people who I should have been building up were going, going hungry. Now, these three relationships, as I see it, are that each of us should be having. And let's start with the easy one first. So I believe we should all have good, strong, peer relationships. Relationships with people who we perceive as alongside us. I personally, on a Tuesday morning, um, meet with John Priddo and Andy Back and Steve Elliott at 7 o'clock. Some of us sometimes are a few few moments late. Um, If it's Steve or Andy or I, that's all right. If it's John, we put the coffee on because we meet in his flat. We have an hour together. Sometimes we spend most of it praying. Sometimes we spend most of it talking. But it's a key place for me. It's a very, very strong place for me. I feel myself surrounded by people with whom I can talk about anything. We sometimes talk about things that are affecting uh, our working lives, just day-by-day things, our emotional lives. Sometimes we talk about Camp Town and the area. Sometimes we'll pray for Terry and the team as they travel around. It varies greatly, but I value that time tremendously. We can pray for one another as peers. Are you praying for people you regard your, as your friends? Are you pressing them to pray for you? Going up to them and saying, look, I've got a problem coming up. I'm going to the dentist on Wednesday. I'm always scared, rigid. Please, will you be praying for me in the early part of this week? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, one of the few Christians in pre-war Germany who stood out against Nazism, who was uh, imprisoned, and then I think two or three days before uh, the death of Hitler was, was executed on the express orders of Hitler, simply as a, uh, an act of, of total malice, um, and who spent many years in prison, said this, a Christian fellowship, that's us, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercessions of its members for one another, or it collapses. As part of this peer relationship, praying for one another. As part of this peer relationship, encouraging one another. If you've never tried encouraging, I tell you, it is tremendous fun. It is really nice, because what happens is you see someone walking along, they're full of doubts. I see John Parsons, he's just brought a prophecy. Uh, He, along with everyone else who brings prophecies, by the end of the meeting is convinced that it was not of God, that it was at the wrong time, it was at the wrong place, um, and at best it was only a prophecy for his dormouse. If you do not have that experience after you prophesy, come and encourage me, okay? So I see John. He's, he's confused about this. I'm able, I go up to him. I put my arm around him. I say, John, that prophecy hit the nail right on the thumb. I say, John, that was spot on. That really, that really touched me. I, I know, I just sensed that was of God. In fact, only this morning I was reading the very passage from which that prophecy obviously developed. The man smiles. I enjoy seeing John smile. And it's so easy to encourage one another. It is a doddle. It really is. And I tell you, it is the best value for money that you can have. It's good for you. It is really good for you. It's good to be encouraged, but it's great to encourage people. I love it. It is, yes, there is an element of risk that you may go up to someone and say that I think that you 
are a star in the universe, and they'll turn around and dot you one. But it is unlikely, all right? The balance of probability is definitely on your side, that if you say nice things to someone, they will smile at you, and they will go away with a nice, warm feeling. And they will be warmer and nicer human beings for the experience. And you will be a warmer and nicer human being for this. It is tremendous. Encourage one another. Correct one another. There's a nice story about Charles Simeon, who transformed Cambridge at the end of the 18th, early 19th century, uh, who was so upset by a friend's servant who poked the fire in an unscientific way that he hit him. This was a really godly man, Charles Simeon. Um, when, when the same servant went to put the bridle on his horse, he did it again in an unscientific way, and, uh, and Simeon let rip at him. So his friend put a little note in his bag, purporting to be from someone called John Softly, saying that we in the kitchen cannot quite understand how such a man of God is unable to bridle his passions. And uh, Simeon took this to heart. He wrote back to his friend, I have, day and night, thanked God for you, and prayed blessings on your head, and watched and prayed against this my besetting sin of anger. I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul near to God, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. I am very grateful to Chris one day after an evening meeting where I had asked a question of such sharpness and penetration that the person of whom I'd asked it had squirmed and stammered. And Chris said to me the next day, he said, Richard, I would like to know what your motivation was for asking this question. And I said, well, Chris, I felt it was a question that needed answering. And I felt... And then eventually I had to acknowledge that actually I had, a stab, I had gained quite a substantial amount of pure pleasure, or not pure pleasure, in seeing this man squirm. <laughs> so Chris said, I'd like you to go and apologise to that guy. And so I went and apologised to that guy. I'm very grateful to Chris for picking me up on that. I believe I have one real right as a member of this church, and that's the right to be corrected. I believe that's the only real right that I have as a member of this church, is to be corrected. Those are peer relationships. I believe the other relationship that we need to have is that we need to be discipled. We need to have someone who takes us in hand and who's building us up. General Dwight D. Eisenhower led the Allied armies at D-Day. But he was a very, very ordinary marine officer until he got transferred to the Panama zone and he came under the leadership of a man called General Fox Connor. And Fox Connor took him in hand, built him up, saw gifts of leadership, strengths, weaknesses, worked on Eisenhower, and then eventually recommended him to General George Marshall. And eventually Eisenhower went on to lead the Allied landing at D-Day. And he wrote this, looking back. He said, In a lifetime of association with great and good men, Fox Connor is the one more or less invisible figure to whom I owe an incalculable debt. And there are people in my Christian life to whom I owe an incalculable debt. Sometimes they've only been in my life for a very short time, but they have seen something, they have worked on me, they have prayed for me, they've taken me in hand, 
They've led me into new areas of Christian experience. They've answered my questions. They've been an example to me. And we need to look out for people like that. We need to have not only the peer relationship in our net, but we need to have the relationship where we're looking to someone to disciple us. When I meet with the people who I'm spending time with, and I regard those times as some of the choice times and the most fruitful times that I could be spending, the questions I ask are basically three. I say, what is God putting on your agenda at the moment? In other words, I'm not trying to suggest to them things which they should be looking for. I say, what is God putting on your agenda at the moment? I ask, what are the areas in which you feel you are making it as a Christian, where you've seen substantial progress in your life? And I say, what are the areas where you have wanted to be making progress, but you feel you're really struggling? And those are the three questions that I, I frame. I talk about goals, short-term and long-term. Where do you feel you're going? necessary. I will mention things that, that, that I've seen. I will above all encourage. We all need the peer relationships in this net. We all re- need to be discipled. Now, some people find it difficult both to ask to be discipled or to say, you know, I'd love to spend some time with you building you up. But I encourage you to overcome that natural reticence. Go and talk your care group leader, go and talk to your pastoral leader, go and pick out people and it needn't be, let me stress, just necessarily someone in your care group. I mean Donna, I know, meets on a, on a Monday after school with three or four friends and they pray together. Now am I saying, well Donna, of course, this is actually outside the Kemp Town area and um, of course really it's outside your care group and, um, and neither, neither Ruth or I are involved in this so I feel that this should stop. This is not my response. My response is tremendous, because I see the fruit of it in Donna's life. So look out for people who you feel, that person is making it in an area where I'm not making it. Go and ask them, what is it that's different about you? Go and ask Andy back, what is it that's changed you? What has happened to you to change you? And we also need, I believe, not only to be being, being discipled, but it's good for us and healthy for us to be doing some discipling. So if you like, you've got your peer relationships, that's part of a triangle. I believe this is an isosceles triangle I'm drawing here, roughly. Equal parts, okay, all equal importance. Angles are all equal. This is good, grade six, elementary, meso level, long time ago, never mind. Okay, here we are, peer relationships. Relationships where you are being discipled relationship where you are the disciple. What? Me a disciple? No, this can't be. <laughs> you don't know me. I couldn't possibly lead anyone anywhere. No, come on. Well, you should be. Okay? This is the bottom line. The bottom line is peer relationships. The sign is going up here. Here's another line going down here. It is possible and right that we should be seeking to disciple other people. Have you just become a Christian? Then there are non-Christians you can be discipling. I'm delighted when I talk with Chris Rotner, who became a Christian just a couple of months ago, whatever it is, she is continually talking to people at work and in her family about Jesus. She is effectively doing some discipling. And I believe that if we've got those three lines of communication, then this net that I'm talking about will be built and built very strongly. And it will grow strongly. And we will know 
that the people around us are healthy and strong and growing and growing and developing. And when someone hurts, there will be someone to care for them. I urge you to apply what you're seeing and you're learning Sunday by Sunday, applying it to your relationships. Let's build this net. Let's get away from going round and round in circles, tight relationships, and build this net. And you'll see that it grows outwards. You see, there's another one going up there, there's another one going up there. I'm not as good as Paul Fay on the audio, on the overhead, so here's a, so my own overhead projector. Here we are. A microphone. Okay, there we are. <laughs> a peculiar people. Some would say, yes, very. A peculiar people and their God. A peculiar people and each other. A peculiar people and the world. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. God's peculiar people. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are here as a declaring people. We are a peculiar people set in a very peculiar world. And God is calling us to declare. We will declare in different ways. Fox, the founder of the Quakers, I heard on Radio 4, great fount of wisdom, Radio 4. You can learn all sorts of obscure things on Radio 4. But I heard that the that George Fox went out into the city of Litchfield, and this was being quoted as, as highly amusing um, by, by the people who are talking about this, as if this guy really was a peculiar person. But I heard it, and my heart sang when I, when, I, when I heard this on the radio. Fox went out into the streets of Litchfield, said, It being market day, the Lord laid on my heart to say this. And I went amongst the streets of the city crying, repent, O oh bloody city of Litchfield. <laughs> now the people on Radio 4 thought this was a hoot, and they kept repeating it, imagining this man walking around the streets of Litchfield, repent, O oh bloody city of Litchfield. Repent, O oh bloody city of Litchfield. In a few decades of ministry, Fox led 20,000 people to the Lord. Declaring the excellencies of him who has taken us from darkness to light. You may say, I couldn't do that. Let me urge you to continue to press out outside your, your circle in which you feel secure. Well, I know I can do that. I know I can do that. Press out. Press out. I started to do it. I preached twice in the open air. And second only to encouraging people, which I've already mentioned, it is tremendous fun. It scares me rigid, but it's tremendous fun. Now, it is, I, I enjoy really being able to use my voice. I enjoy being able to make them hear from Habitat to Mother Care. I like it. Okay? And you can say dynamic things. You take the gloves off when you preach in the open air. It is exciting. It's dynamite. 
You have people walking by who have never heard of the gospel in their lives. You have people walking by whose brother has just become a Christian and they are resisting solidly. And the voice goes out saying, your brother may have just become a Christian and God is calling you. There is no other way in which some of these people will hear unless they hear it in Churchill Square on a Saturday morning or outside Hove Town Hall. Tremendous. It is fun. Occasionally, you will get a rolled up newspaper thrown at me. I enjoyed that. It was good. I felt making contact. This is good. Excellent. Now, I'm not, I wasn't comfortable doing it. I, I'm not 100% comfortable doing this. I am not very comfortable at all standing on a pavement in Hovetown Hall speaking effectively to the wind. You don't know who's, who, where it's going. But it's exciting. Declaring the excellencies of him who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. I couldn't do that, you say? Well, neither could I, but I am, and maybe you will. But there are lots of other ways, aren't there? I've just started working in an office surrounded by non-Christians. It's a new experience for me, and I've heard people say, oh, it's so hard to share the gospel in my office. Now, I say this completely straightly. I find it, I, if I wanted to, I could spend all day, every day, talking about Jesus. Not because I'm making a particular effort to, but because it's a doddle. I find myself being asked questions, um, like, do you think that, um, that unmarried people should live together? Now, it's a bit of a hot issue when the girl sitting at the desk to my left is living with her boyfriend, and I, th- I think she's smashing, I think she, that he's great. But you know, this is where the rubber hits the road. Well, yes, I do, I believe it doesn't please God. But you need to go on showing. I, I, think, I think she's a great girl. I think he's a, he's a terrific guy. I like them both. But there's opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And the horoscope comes out. I'm amazed. I didn't realize the, the, how, how much a part horoscopes played in daily office life. Completely ignorant of this. Now, it's lovely to be able to say that what Isaiah said about horoscopes and astrologers was, well, here is no fire to sit by. That if you want to get warm, that's not the place to be, chum. Okay? <laughs> Say to the seers who see not, and so forth. Okay. Then you have, and will continue to have, in declaring the excellencies of him who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you will be able to be there where you are, in the shops, in the offices, Wherever it is, you are there with the authority of a changed life. And that gives you authority. Now, it gets a bit bumpy here, doesn't it? Because you say, well, actually, my life isn't that changed. And this is where we come back full circle to where we started. I will put an undivided heart within them. I will take away their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. They will be my people and I will be their God. God wants a soft-hearted people. He is committed to turning us into a soft-hearted people. I was delighted when someone I'd known about ten years ago and who I'd not seen for a long time, saw me somewhere 
and had obviously seen me on occasions between recently and said, I'm glad to see that God is taking away your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. No greater tribute could I have. No greater encouragement could I have. Let's look to keep inviting God to give us hearts of flesh, soft hearts. One of the remarkable things, again, on this canal holiday was the way in which God put his finger on areas which some of these people had barely dared to mention to God, let alone themselves, let alone each other. And God's looking around today to touch areas where hearts are stony. Because he wants us to be wholehearted and he wants that whole heart to be soft. Increase our awareness of the parenthood of God. You are God's children. To as many who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Increasing awareness of the presence of God as the Holy Spirit moves amongst us. Don't stiffen your neck muscles and say next week, but recognize that the Holy Spirit wants to settle on you with his hands outstretched over you and his arms underneath you and cherishingly and powerfully and vigorously and delightfully change your life. Let's increase in our awareness of the promises of God. My God will meet all your needs according to his grace in Christ Jesus. Let's increase our relationship together, building one another up, creating this net, and then let's make that a net so strong when the heaving mass of the heathen come towards us there's something strong to catch them you will be my people says our God Uh. I will be your God let's pray Holy Spirit, we invite you now and over coming days and coming weeks to move amongst us to continue to make our hearts soft. Show us, Lord, areas where they've either become callous and hard or they've never even been softened by you. And Lord, make us soft-hearted people. Make us pliable people able to receive the word of God to change our lives and change our community, Lord. Move on us by your spirit, Lord. Build us up.
build us up into a strong people where individual is tied to individual with knots made in heaven, Lord. Strong knots tying us to one another, keeping us flexible and strong, able to move, able to be useful for you. Lord, bless this word. Write it on our hearts, Lord. Take it into our lives, we pray. Bring it before us again and again. Stir us to obey it and to receive it. And we look to see fruit, Lord. We look to see fruit continuing to grow and to blossom. Fruit of beauty, fruit of flavor, fruit that lasts. Jesus, please do it for your name's sake. Amen.